Welcome to the C Word That Can Serve This Podcast. Today we're talking about learning and teaching remotely. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in Kimmelanger. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today we've got a special guest host with us. Jane, do introduce yourself for anyone who doesn't already know who you are. <laughs> so I'm Jane Henderson and I'm a conservator who teaches in Cardiff. Hi. So you're our favourite Agni aunt and uh, previous guest host. It's really good to have you back. Thanks for joining us, Jane. So today we are going to talk a little bit about remote learning and teaching in terms of university courses. Been a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Huge. I mean, basically, the pandemic has changed the landscape of teaching completely. It's been a roller coaster for everyone involved, I think it's fair to say. At least from the, the scattered posts that I've seen from lecturers and people teaching and students, of course, um, it's been a case of, ah, but bravo to everyone who's still going and like, yeah, making this work. I have nothing but admiration for you all. Yeah. So I think everyone in, there were several stages to this, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we all can, um, well, whatever it was we were doing in the March, <laughs> I think it was very much a, um, ah! time of not really knowing what we were supposed to what we were doing that's in the books isn't it the wah school of management (laughs) (laughs) well I think so yeah and I think it should be allowed also that um everything was a bit I suppose scary and chaotic because we weren't just all thinking about our jobs and how to deliver what we were supposed to be delivering but also our health our friends health our health our family's health and all of all of that um, mm. so Jane, I remember talking to you fairly soon into the, into it, into the lockdown, into the pandemic and having the impression basically that times were laying heavy. Yeah. I mean, I think the first, like you say, the first phase, the wah phase was kind of a combination of like supreme overcoping and kind <laughs> of like a, a good way of putting it. <laughs> And a kind of a sadness for what was being stripped away, you know, that kind of panic. Yes. Because, we know, you were at the lab. You know, we were in the lab and then we were out of the lab. It was wipe things down. And even then we said, like, clean your benches, put things away, assuming that we won't be in for a while. And then I didn't assume it would be as long as it turned out to be. But we wiped down, we cleaned down, we put things away. And luckily we didn't leave any... um, Oh, what's the stuff all the paper conservatives all left lying around and then we came back and found it was really moldy. We starched paste, yeah. Grim. <laughs> we saved ourselves from the wheat starch paste monsters. And and, and that sort of supreme copy mm. for you're kind of hyper, aren't you, at that that phase? Like, do what you can, do what you can. <laughs> but also, you know, it was like, how do I get vegetables to my house? How do I persuade my child to get out of bed? And you were so mm. pulled in so many directions that everything felt stressful and high stakes. Yeah. And and that kind of is exhausting, isn't it? That is so exhausting because the yeah. moment yeah. you stop, you flop. So yeah. It's not, a, it's not a response that you can do for a long period. Luckily or unlucky, or however you look at it, you get to the end of term and we got marks and then we were suddenly doing normaler things like marking work and giving feedback. And it, there's a reassurance about it. Although I would say for the students, that was probably worse because they then sent their, you know what it's like when you finish your conservation degree and you send your last projects in. And then there's this big empty void where your fate is being decided. Oh, man. Yeah. It feels slightly sick just thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> you must remember. So I think that um, so I think that was a difficult. It was easier for maybe the staff that, you know, post submission point mm. where we were clicking back into what we normally do. 
Mm. And I think probably harder for the students because then it was like, well, what's going to happen next? And of course, the staff were furiously planning, but it was incredibly difficult because we didn't know, mm-hmm. you know, how long for. And I know a lot of us really did talk about until Christmas and then after Christmas, <laughs> which now seems a bit <laughs> I know. Mystic, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> But some people were saying, well, we'll be back by September. And other people saying, well, I think we should plan till Christmas. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm not saying it was directionless because it wasn't, but we were doing a lot of tasks. And so I think we felt very, very busy, 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 busy doing things. But the students, I think, felt very drifty because we can't mm-hmm. say this is what we're planning until we've pinned that down. Yeah. So I think it was a really hard time for the students. That Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, also, I mean, it's not like, it wasn't really on anyone that you didn't know how long to plan for because you know that there were very much you know noises from you know governmental levels where we've got to get people back into the universities and we've got to do it now and we've got to reopen those things and like it has to be normal you know in some ways impossible to plan for anything so the fact that there was planning going on is amazing to me because like I feel like I would have just sat down and gone it's hopeless <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> So well done. We we still had to say what date we're going to have our essays submitted, you know, way back then in July. It's because someone has to type it into a computer, check it doesn't clash with another essay, you know, all the usual normal stuff. And and so that was strange that that started to kick in again. But you know, it's conflict. You're absolutely right. Because it's like more than anything as a mm-hmm. conservator, mm-hmm. you want to be back in the lab, don't you? Yeah. Like, as a person, I just wanted to stay in the house. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And wash my hands. <laughs> yeah, a lot. There's a sense of normality there that somehow feels displaced in the world because nothing is normal. So how can we have any normal tasks at all? But there are so many little mundane things that you still need to do, like around the planning of when the essay deadlines are and stuff like that. And, you know, that, that sort of thing still carries on. But it must have been absolutely dreadful from, from a student perspective to feel so like you didn't know what was happening so in limbo and I mean that's that's must have been an amplified feeling of what everyone was feeling essentially I think there are several aspects to this that I think it would be really interesting to talk about and I want to talk about obviously the struggle for the students but also the struggle for the teachers and the people who for whom it is Mm. basically the responsibility to carry this along because that's what you're there for um and then suddenly you've been given an entirely different job um to the one that you're you signed up for essentially (laughs) but also I'm really interested in the fact this is such a we are we are here because of the practice we're here because we want to do things with our hands that's why people become conservators we don't become conservators because we want to write loads of essays it's just the thing we put up with because we have to do the degree (laughs) it has to be uh, assessed (laughs) So I'm interested in that third element as well of how to maintain that, the practicality of that and the importance of that during this time. Um, And we're lucky enough to have been allowed to interview several of the large university courses um, that offer conservation of various types to students. And we've, you'll you'll hear them a bit later, um, we've asked them all the same questions. And they are basically around how to get around the problem of remote, essentially, not just remote practice, but also remote support. Um, So I think if we will be talking about those things together with Jane as well. Well, I think one of the things that's been nice, genuinely nice about all this, because we might as well have a few of the nicest, because there's not many nicest. Let's have a nice. One of the things has been that the Conservation Higher Education Network in the UK has got together and we've had a lot more meetings. 
people who are teaching and we've been having meetings over the summer to try and work out what things are common and what we can do. And one of the things that's been really obvious is that the students are concerned that they'll be somehow be seen to be worse from coming from this generation, the COVID era. And so really impressively, ICON in the UK quickly got a survey out to employers and gathered up information about what skills they were looking for in mm. graduates and how that's been impacted by COVID. And, and that's going to be presented back to a, a seminar to students and they've all been invited. And that's not just mm. in the UK. Other people can come if they if I'm sure we can put the link in the show notes. But I, but that sort of response, um, we've got some meetings this week um, with various people to look at what we can do in terms of volunteering and placements. And we're trying to pull together for the sake of the whole sort of this year, last year, next year student cohort so that they don't feel that they've mm. had the worst deal or at least they can identify the good bits as well as the bad bits of the last mm. year and maybe the next year. Yeah. And uh, something else that, because actually you, Jane, <laughs> you, you were involved in this heritage conservation learning in the COVID world thing. That that was super interesting as well to sit in on. Uh, it was a couple of months ago now and uh, it was fascinating to kind of see the kind of responses that have come in about how people are tackling that they certainly had to teach remotely and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I jotted down some notes and just like, I, I love statistics. I love facts like that. I love numbers. Um, <laughs> and like 90% of teaching used to be face to face. You know, that's not surprising to us because, you know, we know that we're a very practical profession and that that's the sort of thing that we do. So only one in 10 would have gone online before, you know, like, but there was there was a great sense of reluctance, like our sorts of courses and stuff to like be taught online. And again, they you know, there are good reasons for that, but people have totally pulled through and made amazing changes and just like delivered like really delivered this year it's astonishing and I'm really impressed and some of the main challenges that the pe people were talking about was that there's no hands-on work there's no in-situ work that's really problematic that they didn't have access to the teaching materials and techniques that they usually do that there was lack of in interpersonal interactions so you couldn't you couldn't be face to face. You couldn't really read students' faces and like, oh, maybe I need mm -hmm. to explain that in a bit more detail. Like there wasn't that kind of connection. And then obviously IT issues, classic. That mm. webinar was huge. You oh, know, it was God. an IICE com, com, um, with Athabasca University. Mm. And um, I believe that it was like the num biggest number of signups. We filled the um, ICOM Zoom space and and um, and had a spillover in um, wow. YouTube. And I guess that is what I was trying to say about the nice thing. The mm. nice thing is that we have this in mm -hmm. common. We are all trying to figure out. We can all take bits of our class. You can always take your leather theory yeah. into Zoom. Mm. But at the end of the day, you can only clean leather in real life. Yeah. <laughs> and you can give people things, techniques to practice at home for a while. But there is something about mm. working on real objects that is so spiritually or emotionally or I don't know something different yeah. than working on dummies. Yeah. And and we know that we can't we've got to get there in order to get people to mature in their conservation approach. I did think that was really good that there was a spirit of we can do this. I feel like everyone was like, these are the good things that we are doing. Yes, we still need need and want to do the practical bits. But there are so many things that we can do. And I love that it was really positive like that. And one of the reasons why Amber and Eleanor were there were to represent the student voices independently so that yeah. they could say what they needed to say away from the teachers. And they could have said, you know, whatever they could. They had a, a mandate to say whatever feedback they got. And it was interesting that the feedback was more like, oh, I've managed to patch together this form of experience for myself. And I've managed to patch, you know, it was mm. it was mucking in. 
rather than do this is dread, wasn't it? But also a little bit of longing, a bit of heavy ice, a bit of, you know, we wish we could go back. Yeah, that's actually, it's interesting hearing you both talking about the, so I didn't attend. What you're saying is really reflected very nicely in some of the interviews that we've been doing for this episode, that a lot of the things that has come out that we'll hear later is the sort of positivity of students and their drive to learn and their drive to learn practically as well and to find solutions to what it is that they want to be doing physically but also interestingly the value of of remote teaching and the flexibility that that might give to a course but I'm yeah longing is a very very good word to use. I felt like the things that the students were bringing up were things like obviously the employability angle and being desirable to future Mm employers that 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 was very much you know a key theme here and the fact that they really wanted to get back to hands-on teaching they they missed their objects if they had objects they missed them but another thing that people worried about were placements because placements are so so crucial in many of these sorts of Mm. university structures all over the world and that 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 was a real worrying point as well for students and that's a you know fair enough really because a lot of emphasis and it depends on which program you're at is often that you're sitting in an institution of some description and you're like learning on the job and that is that's that's hard right now it is and um, a lot of people do placements in the summer mm-hmm. so obviously that was just i mean our placements just couldn't go ahead because institutions were largely mm. closed at the critical points yeah and in terms of next year i mean if i went around every conservation lab and said what are you doing next july people are, just won't know exactly yeah so we're going to have to really ask the profession sort of easter time to open their arms and welcome students into their labs as they possibly can because i don't know that we're going to be able to do much you know in the, in that the normal time we sort this out is kind of Christmas because at Christmas time the summer seems long enough away that nobody really cares what they sign themselves up for because they <laughs> I imagine they'll have loads of time by then <laughs> so it's like yeah of course I'll take a student and then when it gets to like eight weeks away you start thinking oh no what am I going to do with them and so when, if, so when we start asking people six weeks away or whenever is the point where we can actually start to plan, then yeah. people are going to be like, oh, I've just done all this change, you know. And yeah, and, and the risk assessments. And I mean, this has taken so much work, um, risk assessing the lab. And we've really changed the way that we work in our lab mm-hmm. because of, of the risk assessment. And you, it's amazing how hard it is to stay two meters apart yeah. from people and get to the room cupboard. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's the thing, because like I remember the size of the lab, right? Like it's, it's not massive, and there's a lot of people. That makes it sound like it's teeny tiny, but like all of these spaces have been min-maxed in a way, you know, because that's that's how workplaces and universities and coffee shops work. Like you need to get as many people as possible into a small enough space so that people can still comfortably do what they want to do, whether that's you know drinking coffee in a coffee shop, going to the cinema together, or you know learning something in a lab. So the fact that we've now completely had to overhaul that and be like, actually, people need to be a certain distance apart. I mean, that's that's an undertaking. I think Amsterdam was saying that they were staggering their teaching so that people had to come in at different times, like there were different time slots to to help facilitate. We strung out our hours a lot Mm. and we can do it on paper. You know, you can string out, split the classes, different times. You know, there's far fewer and that's less of a community and less crossover. But even then, you know, someone was doing a ceramic repair on a large ceramic the other week. And what she needed to do was put more oomph into, you know, her hands. Mm. You know, when you've got to put more strength into your thumbs and you've got to put more strength into your pinching. And, you know, 
I'm sort of like, you stand back, I'll come forward. And I'm trying to show, you know, this is the physical movement you need to do. You need to get this and, and this and get, yeah. you need to swab. And then you go in and then me come back. And it was so difficult to show something, which in normal life, we would have just stood either side or side by side. And I would have almost, you know, guided the hands in sort of thing. Not quite mm -hmm. guided the hands in, but sort of look at my thumb, mm -hmm. look at the pressure that's coming through the, the ball of my thumb or look at my fingers are, look at that pinching movement. Can you just see that tiny rotation I'm doing with my wrist, you know? Yeah. That. How did you start the process of opening up the labs again? So the university did formal risk assessments across all the estate and that was very much done. I mean, room by room, it was a massive undertaking. And so this is what I mean, like the students mm. may have felt that they were in limbo because, you know, this information was being catalogued across the whole of the university and where I work, there's a lot of buildings and a lot of rooms. So it was a massive institution-wide thing. And then building by building risk assessments, which were discussed and agreed with unions. And, you know, all that process takes a long time. And people going around and saying, how much window do we need open? And how's this going to work? And what, and booking systems to book into offices and just so much stuff. And I felt that was a really hard time for the students. And I think that promoted more and more anxiety because it was very hard to reassure people that you were working yeah. behind the scenes and that there was an end in sight because in the end of the day you can't turn around and say I guarantee that you'll be in this lab until you've got a piece mm -hmm. of paper with yeah. a signature on it if you know what I mean mm -hmm. a risk assessment. so was that in the summer then or was that closer to the autumn it was it was right up to the wire. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a lot of work. I mean, and you know the thing, isn't it? You know, we're sort of mm. sciences and the humanities. So, you know, we've got a teaching hospital, which, you know, no one would disagree would be the top priority. So yeah. <laughs> let's get the nurses and the doctors and the health care workers. Yes, I'm, I'm all in favour of that. Much <laughs> as I love conservation, I have some sense of perspective about what's important. <laughs> Only just. Did you find you had to shout a bit louder than, than you expected to begin with then? It wasn't about shouting. It was about just the sheer volume of work. I mean, people did lots of advocacy don't get me wrong but you know there was just so much work to be to be done and then every tweak has that unintended consequence if you change one thing here then what's the ripple effect downstream and you know we we had to bring in some extra classes and how to be taught online for students and then it's like where does that fit in the schedule do you change the schedule if you change the schedule, how does that knock onto the decisions you made two months ago about when the essays are going to be? I'm, I'm, I've spoken to a few of the universities and I think everyone's pulled together, but it has been interesting that it's been different as well. So like one of the funny little quirks between us and UCL, because I'm in Cardiff, for example, was that UCL worked like get all the students in for the whole day, be there the really, really long time. Whereas we were more like get them in for a shorter amount of time and then get them back out again, get them back out in the fresh air sort of thing. And this came from the fact that basically all anyone who's in Cardiff can always walk to wherever they need to be. Yeah. Whereas in London, you have to get on the tube or on the bus. And so the risk profile was entirely different from coming in. Yeah. I wondered how long this uh, episode would go on before you said the words risk profile. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing my best to be human. <laughs> but it's just like little things like that, that you approaching the world, you don't realise that yeah. you're in London, you think London and you're in Cardiff, you think walk through the park, don't you? However rainy it is. And I'm like, where can we put wet coats? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> because we do have to deal with that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and I think it's that 
And then, of course, it's how everyone feels about that. So a lot of students were trying to make decisions, very difficult decisions about coming back or deferring. Of course. And I'm pretty sure all the universities, I know certainly we were, were very like, it's your choice, your call, there'll be no penalty, defer or don't, it's, it's your choice. But they were trying to get evidence, hard evidence, because that's what our natural instinct is in uncertain times. Mm, yeah. And this is something I've written about in preventive conservation, like managing uncertainty. And it's that thing that if you are in uncertain times and if you don't know what's happening next, the only thing you can do is to keep going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And try and make the best out of today and the best out of the experience you're currently in and try and take the good times when you get them and just, yeah. you know, and not let the, the bad bits become all that you are. And that comes from beyond conservation that comes from how we live under uncertainty and all of us go through periods in our life when we really have to draw on that approach but I think that's something that perhaps some people haven't gone through which is hurrah who who wants that but it does mean that that please tell me a definite fact thing overwhelming and we all know that please tell me a well definite fact please give me an absolute percentage of a certainty that we'll be doing this in three months time please give me a, a an absolute number <laughs> yeah, of a give me a way to decide yeah <laughs> things that we feel comfortable with. and of course you just don't get them when everything is up in the air and so you have to learn other ways to cope and I think that that might be one of the things we could do more if this carries on for the next six months and things is more about learning to live with uncertainty yeah that's a really good point actually and I mean we could go into all the mental health aspects of this but we're we're not gonna because that's like a different episode I'm really intrigued by like the kind of problem solving angles that that we've seen from universities like um I loved the things that we talked we talked about in the, the in the seminar for example about the sorts of things that people thought of as good exercises for when to get students to do like planning exercises just like how would you prepare to pack transport and install an object that's something you can write down you know that's a, that's a good thinking exercise that's still super useful and you're probably going to do in your working life you know that sort of thing there was a lovely story wasn't there at the um ecom um iac athabasca about someone making little painted panels little oh, I know. samples and she put their names under the paint layers and then got them to clean them and then they found their own names and like little message it was oh my adorable. god <laughs> That's like tear worthy. Oh, that was like, I wish I could be the teacher that you are. <laughs> it was really adorable. But I know that Card have sent out sent out some stuff um, because I have gotten an email here from the lovely Ashley, who uh, kindly told me the, th- the sorts of things that were being sent out to students. So at Cardiff, people get issued with a tool roll. That was the thing when we were there. Still got and, it. Uh, that was sent out. Some pennies that were buried in the garden for a couple of months, air abrasive powder, dental plaster, dental wax, sandpaper, mixing containers, tongue depressors, paraloid B72 in the tube, some 10% clusal G, some cotton and skewers, a box of basic acrylic paints, layered plaster blocks, so layers of plaster, clay, polyfilla, and two layers of different acrylic paints, and a broken terracotta pot with with uh, shirts missing. I love this because this is like a little starting kit of like, let's get some basic hand skills and let's get some basic exercises done. And I adore this. Uh, Ashley said that the idea was that they could practice and start gaining confidence with some mechanical skills and methods we use in conservation in a low pressure atmosphere. And oh God, I, I mean, that's amazing. 
most people wouldn't have parallel B72 hanging around the house. But at least this way you've got some to get to know the material because, you know, that's a that's a whole journey that you go on as a student. I remember it well. Oh, this is stringy and difficult to work with and I can dilute it. And oh, it's very smelly. And oh, why is it already dry? Yes. <laughs> Where did those bubbles come from? I mean, that's a whole journey, but I, I appreciate that that journey can now partially happen at home. That's kind of, I kind of like that, actually. I, I like the low pressure environment aspect of this. Like, that's, that's a good thing. Do you know what else, Jenny? Ashley Lingle put those boxes together and it was very much the second phase. That's moving on from the wah phase. That's moving yeah. into the, you know, <laughs> yeah. we've actually had a chance to think about it. But also some of us can get back in the building and we can start to do some ordering. But, you know, it wasn't just the, you know, you can get going on doing this task. It was also the enunciation that you are now a conservator because you've got a tool role, you know? Yes. <laughs> I am a conservator because I only, I've still got my tool role from, you know, several <laughs> centuries ago when I started in conservation. It's that identity thing that we have as conservators, isn't it? It's you get your box, you pick it up and you take it home and you suddenly sat there in your house, your room. I am a conservator. <laughs> I've got this case. Exactly. I'm on the beginning of the journey. Now, if only we could send, you know, Roman Nails home as well. But, you know, that's we've got to work that through next. But time mm. is the other thing. You know, at home, like you said, you have time. The difficulty we have now in phase two, I guess, of what do we do about the pandemic is time is so precious. What's happening now then on your side of things? Well, we can only... as everyone else we can only have people in socially distanced two meters apart ventilated windows open fume cupboards on so that reduces the amount of people that can be in the building and no one you, you don't just wander in and out you have to book in so supervised time there's only so many people you can get in a space with one teacher so it's just it's just made our time so precious you know how conservation is all about mm -hmm. theory yeah. and practice together I do worry that these are being tested, that relationship is being tested. So it's like you have got precious lab time. So, you know, you've got to get like lab, 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 lab. You know, if you are not poking with the scalpel or dusting with the brush, <laughs> then you're wasting some of your super precious time, which you're not. But, you know, that sort of reflection time. But yeah. then with the newer students, we've put them in front of the objects without giving them any tools and said, look at those objects, spend this time. And you can feel their panic. It's like, oh no, oh, what am I doing? Why are you using this precious time to make me just look at an object? Yeah. Surely I should be doing something. <laughs> I must do something. I must do something. So, you know, the whole relationship with time, I think that's going to be really interesting when we look back. Yeah. I was thinking, actually, that I the, the occasions that I've had an intern in my studio, I'm very much one of those people who will be doing something and we'll be talking about one thing and then something will occur to me and I'll say, this is a thing that I've just considered that will be really useful for you to know, so let's have a conversation about it. Oh, and then we can go and have another talk about this theoretical thing and here's a book that you might be interested to look at. And then suddenly, two hours of practical time is actually half an hour of practical time. Yeah. But you've also gone through all of those conversations and all of those thought processes and, and all of that. So We've actually got some some student responses because uh, we've had some some people write in, you know, about their experiences and how they're kind of feeling about the entire thing in the time of the pandemic. Uh, so I just thought I'd read those out briefly. Someone says, I'm a new mature age student living off campus and I'm finding the remote access via Zoom to be great. But when it's a blended class with some of us on Zoom and others in the classroom, it's really hard to hear. 
unis might need better uh, audio systems to accommodate. That would be very useful. But they say that they're missing social interaction. Uh, but the improved online research access through libraries has mm. been a vast improvement. And I'm hoping things will be learned and uh, some things kept for when things go back to the new normal. Thanks very much for writing to us for that. That's a good point. Also, I've been in meetings where some people have been in the Same. actual physical room and some people have Same. been remotely. And it's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I was in an accession meeting and they were really conscious to make sure that I had, you know, people could hear me and stuff. There were people wearing masks, but only the people sort of closer to each other because it was in a really big room, which also so was tricky because they had to the people on the other side of the room had to yell yeah. at the computer but this on one occasion i had to yell the words please don't accession a food bank box please don't i'm gonna have to drain all the cans and i had to say that you know oh. about five times i think and that's all uh, you compromises again because if someone can get in and they, there's enough space to, to teach, then you can teach. So then you have some people who can't because they're shielding and that's mm. rightly, they should be provided with alternatives. And you, you're all, you're in that conflicting situation. If it can be taught remotely, should you teach everyone remotely and then you lose out the ones who could get their face-to-face? Yeah. Or do you have two cohorts almost, the remote cohort? And, you know, and I like, I really like that every year has a sense of identity in a conservation degree. And it would break my heart if we had two cohorts, you know, the online cohort and that you know what I mean I would hate that but as you say you've got people scattered around quite a big space with masks on trying to mm-hmm. speak to someone through a com- to another group through a computer it's a challenge I'm trying to sandwich technique on that so that there's some pre-work which is on shared documents and then a discussion and breakouts which are either online or in class and then a post work writing up together on a shared document again but it's still not it's nice some bits of it I quite like but it's still not the same as all just being in the room talking so someone else said hey I'm a conservation student in Belgium we're in lockdown again which means no more practical work for at least a month and a half that will probably be until at least the end of the semester I finished a practical course last year so it doesn't affect me as much as other students got a volunteer contract with the university this year to finish my objects which I couldn't during the previous academic year because of lockdown but I'm not sure if I'll go and finish them, which is devastating. The students who are enrolled in the practical course get replacement assignments. I've heard of writing a scientific article about non-empirical research. Other labs, like the paintings one, got damaged dummies to take home and materials so they can keep practicing their filling and retouching competencies. Other than that, everything is online, which sucks for group assignments. And yeah. Yeah, so more people using dummies and uh, things like mock-ups to kind of practice on, which, you know, we've already talked about. Someone else says, hey, I'm not a student anymore, but I was just finishing my final year when lockdown first struck, so I hope that counts. It totally does. I think the thing I really struggled with in terms of virtual practical classes was the lack of feedback possible. I've heard educators on recent webinar talks enthusiastically talk about all the great resources they've found, sending out student kits and videos of techniques. The problem is that learning practical skills, it's not enough for me to see someone doing it perfectly. What I need is a member of staff to see me doing it and say, here's why that didn't work. You should be holding the tool differently. Yeah, I feel like that now even. You do need the kind of interaction to see your mistakes and improve. I don't believe practical skills with any complexity can be taught at a distance spending time in person in the lab however limited that is should be the absolute priority yes that's you know that is one of the things that's really hard not even with like a good webcam setup can you truly communicate you need to just because sometimes you just need to this is how i hold it look look at it (laughs) this is how it sits in my hand you know so hard yeah exactly what sound is it making 
And finally, we got, hi, uh, I'm studying conservation of organic materials in Helsinki. Hey, this is my second year of four. Most of our lectures are now on Zoom or Teams. We can be on campus only if it's absolutely necessary and only in small groups, like when we have chemistry labs or are learning to do something that can only be done at school, like how to dye fabrics. It's a bit frustrating that we can't be on campus because interaction between teachers and students and with other students is an important part of learning. Sitting from the computer for many hours is exhausting. Uh, I'm a bit worried about the situation next spring when I should be doing my work experience. I miss campus, my teachers and my friends, and I miss doing things together with them and learning from them. And I think that's definitely something that I've heard a lot of. Thank you for sharing. Um, like we said, people really miss being there and having access to people as well as things. I think that's that's the key here. Also had Helen Hughes write in, who teaches conservation, to say that basically she's saying that you're never too old to learn new things because uh, she's learned how to make documentary videos thanks to an icon course and that sort of thing, which has really helped her to keep delivering her teaching, which I think is wonderful to hear about. That's definitely something that I took away from that seminar. Teachers and lecturers out there and people supporting the learning of, of, of the students, they're also going through one hell of a learning curve. We're upskilling like never before. <laughs> I have to say there is there must be a point where you're too old to learn new skills because I am exhausted by it. And it doesn't matter how many webinars I watch about how to use the kit. And I've just kind of set myself a goal. I don't have to learn more than one new piece of software a week. But that is, <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, that is that's conservative. I mean, the rate that this stuff comes at you in terms of yeah. platforms and recordings mm. and editing and stuff. And I honestly I feel old with it. I do and I've I don't let the students down and I know the student newspapers are like, we don't want to hear any more lecturers saying, I don't really know how to use Zoom. And I, can, I can't blame them either. I know they don't want to hear that. But, you know, over the summer, I spoke to someone who didn't have to open another tab on an Excel file. And they've got to go from that to <laughs> running oh, yeah. live interactive yeah. teaching. Yeah. It's oh, lovely. Yeah. I am appreciating the upskilling, but I am exhausted to be honest, that's perfectly fine. And, you know, that's a lot of people are really exhausted now. It's it's asking a lot under any circumstances. And um, you, you're you completely right. And also there's, there is a very serious thing here. Some people are being left out of this entirely. You know, like sometimes people can't keep up for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, that can be mental health. It's not, you know, it's not that people are too stupid to learn something new. It's just, sometimes it's just too overwhelming. It's too much. It's too fast. It's not taught the right way or like mm -hmm. well to even begin to learn that skill you have to have a certain amount of digital literacy to begin with because otherwise you can't start the youtube video that tells you how to use the thing you know it's it is a lot harder than we make it sound and and i think that's fair to recognize but it's 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 incessant at the moment isn't it and we're really lucky our university said right we're closing for christmas you are having some time off oh that's good it's really good and i think a lot of us are really you know thinking yes i am looking forward to that you know i need a break and i'm hoping because you know you said well let's not do mental health but i think it's inseparable at the moment oh it absolutely is it is an important thing to address and you really do need to look after yourself and so zoom exhaustion and burnout they're real things things what's going to be really interesting in sort of phase three or maybe phase four is what's the good bits have been you know what are the bits that mm. we're actually going to look back on and say I'm going to keep that it's called flipped learning um, in the academic circles and I think we'll all do more flipped learning so more content in advance classrooms for discussion yeah 
I think that's something that will take us forward, like a generation of progress over a year that we wouldn't have had without the pandemic. So I kind of want to sort of, we've talked about phase one and phase two, and then I kind of just want to look at phase three and four, whatever they're going to be. The after times. The after times. When we say, what what have we gleaned? What have been the pluses? And there will be some, won't there? So before we end, I would like to ask a question that we've asked everyone else. And it's bringing back mental health a bit, but in a targeted way. How do you help students who are struggling with the work and with their mental health or the pressure of the situation? And honestly, I don't know that directly helping students' mental health is our role as teachers and that there are other people. And it's not Mm -hmm. that I don't care. It's just that I'm not qualified to help with people's mental health. So officially, Mm -hmm. it's very much about directing people to the support that there is. Mm -hmm. So when people Mm -hmm. disclose... What we have done sort of technically and practically have been, you know, build far more forgiving systems in terms of people not having to perform first time, having second chances and things like that. I think that what we can do in reality is things like the communication and saying as soon as we can and answering questions. But oftentimes the answer is we still don't know that. So we've recently where, mm. where we are in Wales, um, Jenny will probably be aware that the government have made a decision about people returning home yeah, at certain yeah. dates. Our lockdowns are different from England. So we're always dealing with this unknowns. So I think that ultimately when you you can't give people what they really want, which is a load of certainty and lots and lots of love time. But um, I, I don't know, is it compassion? Is it just that's all you can do? It's just like a shared sense that we're all in this together, that mm. you care and that you you hear and that you acknowledge. I think it's it's kindness, isn't it? The, the day-to-day thing that we can offer is kindness. And that's probably... <sighs> That's probably what I'm officially allowed to offer beyond the sort of the very sensible recommendations and support systems and, you know, obviously encouragement for people to ask for help and to acknowledge that. I've tried to acknowledge in public where I've been struggling. I tried to do that today as well because Mm -hmm. I think it helps if people see that no one is finding this easy so yeah. that if they're not finding it easy they can maybe talk about it a bit as well mm. so I don't know but it's I guess kindness what else can I say I said earlier we've been really lucky to have some interviews with a number of the main sort of conservation educators in the UK um, so let's listen to those now Hello, I'm Karen Thompson and I'm a textile conservator and lecturer at the University of Glasgow and I convene the MPhil in textile conservation. Thank you. Hello. We've met a number of times before, haven't we? Because I'm I'm also into textiles and I really like your labs there. We're really lucky, actually. We have a very good space that works really well and allows good interaction between the students from different year groups. Brilliant. So we're here obviously talking about remote teaching. So what has your year looked like in terms of remote teaching? Um, It's been a very interesting journey and uh, one that's involved a lot of learning, I think, for all of us, not just the students. So in Glasgow, we were asked um, to leave and not return to the studio on the 15th of March. Oh, early. Um, yeah, very early. And we had we had a few, our semester starts earlier than, than it would do down in England. So it was very much trying to adapt what we did to the online context. So practical projects were paused until the sort of middle of summer when we were able to pick up some of those again. But the other courses, the lectures that were still remaining continued online mm-hmm. and they worked very well. And then the students they were just about to go on placement for the first years so we had to do some very swift 
changes um, and pivot to a virtual placement. And we worked with professional colleagues to create projects that related to the museums and their particular needs. So that we had some great projects involving costume mounting, involving different cleaning techniques using poultices and blotter washing, as well as research projects looking into the detergents and pesticides. So a great range of projects for the virtual placements. And they also ran alongside, we had um, practical stitching tasks that the students did as well. For the dissertations, they all moved online. A couple of students were able to do some things from home in terms of practical testing. But again, a great range of projects. And it, what, what it really showed was the creative thinking that the students were doing in terms of adapting the projects, finding different ways to test, taking things from home, very ordinary things from home and adapting them and using them to um, try out different things that they were exploring. Very much problem solving and problem setting. So looking at problems in a particular context was really important. And I think one of the things that's, that was really impressive was their sort of resilience and adaptability. They took the opportunities and ran with them. And it was a really positive and um, engaging time. So we, in fact, we had a great summer despite the isolation and the lockdown and uh, things like that. So. What have been the biggest challenges? In terms of challenges, I suppose it's it's not having access to the studio. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest challenge. I think moving teaching online requires a lot of time and a lot of thought and to do that very quickly is is very demanding I think for both the teaching staff and for the students I think just adapting to a different way of thinking and a different way of learning but I think we did it very well I think it was very effective one of the things that I think we have developed is that sort of real appreciation of and how precious that studio time is. And since being able to get back into the studios later in the summer and over the autumn is that we're making much better use of our studio time. So it's really concentrated ah. and sort of you're really focused. So a lot of those admin duties and tasks like that, which you would have maybe would have crept into a day of being have, you know, days allocated to them. So when you're in the studio, you're in the studio and you're focusing and concentrating. Yes, of course. I think that I've definitely found that in my own my own practice, just because I've only been allowed in the studio two days. What have your biggest successes been, do you think, as a department and personally? I suppose in terms of successes, I'm really pleased that the way that we've been able to adapt our teaching to work both online and in person. Mm. And I think I suppose we've shifted our priorities slightly and seen the value of some remote teaching mm-hmm. um, ah. as it allows more flexibility so which is really good for the students especially on a very intense program such as ours it means that we we the lectures are recorded which gives students the opportunity to go back and review things because I think your thinking changes as you progress through um, a particular aspect of the course absolutely things that you you may not notice or be so aware of at the beginning when you come back and look at them you know later on are much more meaningful so I think being able to review and reflect on what you're learning is really important there are things that we will take away from this which um, we will continue to do in terms of other successes I think the virtual placement was was really successful. Whilst it doesn't replace what is so valuable in terms of an in-person placement, um, it offers lots of other benefits and, and learning opportunities and ways of collaborating with colleagues. And I think not just within the education sector, but more broadly. So you've been doing, you started off obviously spring and summer in at the deep end with remote teaching. Which lessons are you taking away to change what you're going to be doing in this next term? For me, the biggest thing I think is 
communication mm-hmm. and the importance of a sort of a community, a learning community, a community of colleagues. And that discussion and engagement is really important. I think when working online, even if you have the opportunity to come into the studio, sometimes it is more isolating. And I think you need to have different ways of communicating informally as well as formally. So we've been using chats and Zoom quite a lot and things like that mm-hmm. to, to get together. And I think those things are really important. So the next three questions are um, sort of like a quick fire grilling. Okay. So firstly, what ways do you tackle practical learning? Okay, so well, we're very lucky in Scotland that we have been able to come into the studio. We have been in pretty much as much as we would be normally. So in that respect, things haven't changed much. But over the summer, students did some practical work from home. Working with textiles allows quite a lot of flexibility in terms of practicing stitching, which we can mm-hmm. always do with. <laughs> yes. Whatever stage of the profession we're at. So, and that's something you can do without objects. So you can, you know, at home you can do and practice those skills. That's one of the things that we're able to do. And other things that we were able to do from home is that students were um, testing different aspects for their research and found very creative solutions to um, the types of materials that you could use that would replicate what you can do in a studio. And I think it's that ability with creative thinking, problem solving in a particular context that's allowed us to continue doing practical work when studio access was not so available. Sarah, a colleague of mine, was very quick thinking. And and as we were being asked to leave the building, she was gathering up loads of textile samples that we have um, for practicing stitching and things like that and sent home packages to the students so that they could carry on doing their stitching. But also they found things at home which they then aged artificially, destroyed, created Mm -hmm. damage, and then spent the summer trying to find their own solutions to addressing those problems. So working with knitted fabrics and, and different types of weave textures and things like that to try and find their solutions. In what ways can students develop their practical skills at home? I mean, I think with textiles, you will find a lot of textile conservators carry on their own sort of practical skills at home through their craft work. Um, ah, so of course. Or sewing or embroidery or, or different, you know, different craft skills is, mm. is a really good way of, of sort of keeping up those sort of manual dexterity skills. And I think anything that you do is is great. And thinking about fine detail and precision and accuracy. So I think you can find it in lots of things that aren't necessarily um, conservation objects. Anything that causes you to think about something differently and look at something mm-hmm. in you is a good skill. So the final question I've got is, what, in what ways do you offer support to students who are struggling? I think that's a really important question. And I think it's something I, we've become even more acutely aware of, I think, in this context. Mm. Isolation, being away from family and as well. There's a lot of insecurity, I think. It's, a, it's an unknown situation for all of us. And I think it is, it is challenging. And I think, again, it comes back to the, the value of and the importance of the community. The building communities online and in person is really important. And trying to find different ways to encourage the students to engage with us and to engage with their peers is really important. So I know the students have set up sort of virtual chats and coffees and quizzes and things mm-hmm. like that in great ways, I think, to get together and outside of that work context as well, which I think is important. Have you seen that? This isn't one of the included questions, so I apologise. Um, but have you seen that change from the sort of um, initial um, novelty, I suppose, of the of the lockdown in March and to that that we're experiencing now? I think we've got more confident with ah. using the different digital means. I think we've sort of worked out what ones work for different purposes. So I think we're better. And I think 
I would like to think that we're better at asking for help. Some of us find that working without the camera on is easier and make, makes you feel more comfortable. Sometimes it's actually nicer to see a person, you know, and so I think it depends mm-hmm. on different individuals. Hello, Chloe. It's nice to be here. Um, Yeah, I'm Eric Nordgren. I'm the subject leader in metals conservation at Westing College and also a science liaison as well. So I I do a bit of science teaching uh, for the students here. I've got a lot of great support from my colleagues here, which is a really wonderful environment to be in. But today I'll speak a little bit more about my experience personally in, in delivering my teaching here during this interesting time. Brilliant. So when you say you're in West Dean, you're physically in West Dean now, aren't you? So my first question to you is, what has your year looked like in terms of remote teaching? So yes, I'm physically at West Dean as I've been doing some in-person teaching in our labs, which we uh, tend to call workshops at West Dean. And we've been trying to deliver as much as we can of the practical teaching experience on the days that are set aside for that, while doing a little bit of a blended learning approach where as much as we can deliver remotely and online, um, we still do that. So we're currently doing a mixture of both. But earlier in the year, when coronavirus first hit uh, in a big way and we had our initial lockdowns, things looked quite a bit different. So we, we had to make a complete switch pretty much overnight to online only teaching. And then we had a few weeks over Easter to kind of catch our breath and formulate how best to proceed with that for our last term of the 2019-2020 academic year. And then kind of moving into summer, we were able to, to kind of catch up again. So earlier on, kind of in, in the late spring, we had to make a really quick adaptation to online teaching. Uh, and then we've kind of been developing since then and kind of now into a blended approach. But we always have the possibility that advice and regulations could change and Mm. we might have to stop in-person teaching and go back completely online again so it's been a bit of a catch-up and 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 mixed uh picture but a positive one so far what were your biggest challenges then uh the biggest challenges were how relatively suddenly it came upon Mm. us have to make this change and we very rapidly had to say okay let's gather up any materials that we can use at home to on on video or audio to present and how can we kind of rather quickly come up with a a schedule and a plan that we can relate so i think some of the biggest challenges were basically dealing without the ability to practically interact with objects and work in person with our students on them and 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 introduce new tools and processes and investigation of objects, all of those things that we'd normally do. That was a a huge challenge. And I think there are many aspects of conservation because I I view it as often very much of a thought process as well as Mm -hmm. the practical activity. And that part of it, I think we can do really well remotely, and we were able to do that. But I think the big challenge was how can we make this teaching relevant to developing our students' practical abilities and skills in some way without actually being able to do the practical work? Mm-hmm. Uh, getting to terms with some of the new technology, uh, some of that's not maybe groundbreaking in terms of what's possible technically, but getting familiar and using platforms like uh, Microsoft Teams as well as our virtual learning environment more extensively and more effectively than we ever had before. Some of our students didn't have the best connectivity as well. So we had to find ways of making sure we still reached everyone. 
We also had a big steep learning curve in terms of what you might sort of call methodology in online delivery used broadly in education, not just necessarily in conservation. And what we could take from those good practice and all the different resources we could find online about that and transforming that into something we could use to teach conservation effectively. So jumping straight into what were your successes? I think some of the struggles were just the, the sort of slightly chaotic nature of making the change. And I'm speaking about this for myself personally, um, but I felt like the fact that we successfully were able to relay some hopefully useful content in those first few weeks of mm. online teaching and, and, and actually get some opportunities to discuss real conservation issues with our students, that was a really positive thing. Also, once we had a, a little bit of time uh, away during Easter break to kind of reformulate, we were able to, I was able to work with colleagues, get ideas from them, do things which worked well with what other people were doing. But also my own kind of personal experience was about developing what would work for the specific kinds of conservation I was dealing with. So primarily objects conservation and mm -hmm. largely on metal objects. And it was quite gratifying to be able to feel that I could adapt some of the materials they already had, some of the lectures I would have given, some of the presentation of things. I was able to present those online in a way that was possibly as effective as it would have been in person. It's just that I couldn't use some of the physical examples uh, that I might have had in, in, in the lab. So since you've been doing this throughout the spring and the summer, you're back now. Which lessons are you taking away from the start of the year? Well, I think it's the fact that we can do it. Uh, it's not easy, but we can relate a lot of relevant material to some extent with a combination of live and what, what we term asynchronous sessions as well with online content. We find that we can do that fairly effectively and we can actually talk about real conservation issues and real practical challenges and practical techniques. And so that's kind of buoyed us a little bit because we feel like, well, yes, that has been possible. It's not ideal, but it is possible for students to learn quite a lot. Uh, and we've had some fairly good feedback about our efforts in that way. So in terms of going forward, I think it's informed the way that we tried to do the blended approach we're doing now. So I tried to make the practical sessions working with the students directly on site to be as effective and as time effective as they can be. So to make that really good takeaway lessons that they, they can then reflect on away from the, the in-person experience and then also continuing to develop content effectively that can be presented equally online. So in a way, we're kind of working to be ready to switch gears uh, should we need to. But I think it's been really a, a matter of trying to say it's no longer quite as new or quite as chaotic as it was mm -hmm. but it still keeps us on our toes yes. and how can we manage to continually innovate in certain ways to make sure that it really works and to listen to our students as well in a way it's just reflexive practice as you might do in other aspects of conservation is basically constantly thinking about is this teaching strategy working mm -hmm. and how could it maybe be better. I think one of the reasons that I was really interested in talking to you at West Dean is that West Dean is known in the conservation sphere, I think, as the really practical one. It's where you go to learn really practical techniques. In what way have you tackled practical learning at a distance? I think it's been a combination of 
building on the actual practical learning that they have been able to do so far. Mm -hmm. In some cases, that's past experience, perhaps in a previous studies or, or practical experience, and then taking it forward in terms of discussion, what we could do if we were in the workshop, in the lab, with this object and with these materials, and what we will plan to do when we get back there. I mean, that's one way of tackling it. When you've got really new students to conservation, that is really tough. And I think what we try to do is emphasize not just the understanding of things, but the physical experience and tactile. Um, I've started to become more, more used to the term haptic, which is used quite a lot in craft teaching, uh, the feeling of tools in your hand and trying to relate that a little bit, trying to talk about those things a little bit more, which is nowhere near the same thing as actually doing them, but at least it makes people think about what that would be like. Another way is to use lots of resources, things like videos, of these processes happening, and that sometimes crosses over into aspects of how materials are worked and made or refined and talking about that whole process and trying to get the real world practical activities that go into that foremost in our in our minds throughout the, the discussion. In what ways can students develop their practical skills at home? There's lots of ways, and I think it depends a little bit on circumstances sometimes. Of um, course. We know that a lot of our students have good facilities at home. They might have their own sort of lab or workshop, and other people really don't have that uh, kind of situation at all. So we have to have strategies. It's to talk to people about some of the principles that we're trying to cover at the time and encourage them to do short projects that might be with things they can get hold of around the house or in the back garden. Even a, a, a soup can, say, could become a, a bit of a test bed for different types of cleaning techniques or using different types of abrasive, say, to remove corrosion or that kind of thing. Students can go through some of the same things they would do with a real object in the lab or the workshop and do some of the documentation that you might be might be doing as well, even with your with your phone as a camera, if, if, if it's uh, the way you like to work with it and go through that process, thinking about it, looking at options, or at the same time, we are able to, and I'm, I'm able to put together some little packs for students as well to take home with them if they've kind of got to leave the practical teaching at the college. One of the important considerations about practical work at home is definitely health and safety. Of course. And so I would always advise, <laughs> definitely, uh, I would like to advise, you know, all of my students, you know, and anyone kind of doing this sort of thing to always consider that when they're uh, working at home and making sure if there's PPE that they need, that they do have that or that they're not working in such a way that could be dangerous for health for, for anyone. So finally, then, in what ways do you offer students support if they're struggling? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd like to say to some degree, I feel like I've been lucky that most of the students I've been teaching uh, remotely or partly remotely have really stepped up to the challenges of it and have done really well. But I think there's a couple of ways. So one thing is that there have been some opportunities, thankfully, to allow them to take a bit more time. There are when you're, when you're doing education, there are certain deadlines for you know, submitting work and, and having that being assessed. But it's been nice to be able to take a little bit more time discussing things and providing a little bit more one-to-one -one support online to students who are finding that certain assignments are difficult. And of course, if anyone has any 
health issues, that's always uh, able to be taken into account Mm -hmm. in an educational setting. I've tried to be as flexible, sort of realize that the rules are a little bit different now in some respects, not in in all respects. And really, it's about supporting students to learn as much as possible in a way that, that works for them. In other ways, I think it's been trying to kind of understand that not everyone is going to find the situation, certainly none of us find it easy, but find it comfortable and to work with them, work with colleagues, come up with alternative approaches in some cases to either get the material to them or to spend time addressing the issues that that they bring back to us. Hi, I'm Emily Williams, and I'm an associate professor in archaeological conservation at Durham University, and I direct the MA in conservation of archaeological and museum objects here. Thank you for joining us. So today we're talking a bit about the the ways that teaching may have changed in the recent year. What's the year looked like in terms of teaching for you guys? We were pretty lucky in the timing of the first shutdown because it happened just as we were going on to Easter break. So that gave us a little time to figure out. The students didn't get to do the summer practical work that they might have done, and we had to figure out how to try to move elements of that onto line. Mm. I think this fall, of course, we're still feeling the effect, but less so. We've managed to protect the practical components of the course, and it's really just the large lectures that have moved online now. What was it like uh, moving those sorts of lectures online? It's been fine in some ways. I personally find that the ability to connect with the students in a large classroom is not as easy. When I'm sharing my screen, I can see two or three students and they have to act as a barometer for what the whole class may be puzzling over or easily understanding. And that's that's more difficult because in a room you can scan and you can see that somebody looks a little puzzled and find ways to restate things. So I personally have struggled with that element. I think that there have been a lot of really great opportunities in this for us, though. And It's made me question some of the things that I've done. Of course, we're all having to find new ways of doing things, find new activities to do. And so the the creative element, you know, panicked creation, but creation (laughs) nonetheless is kind of fun. Um, (laughs) Oh, that's good. (laughs) And I think what's been really nice for us, we have a great setup here, but Durham is a little... You know, it's not in a big mass of other museums. And Mm. so what this whole situation has done for us, which is neat, is it's allowed us to bring the world more to Durham. So, you know, so many museums have been great about putting conservation content online and virtual tours of labs and things like that. So, So we can take the students to those places virtually. And then 
my most fun project has been for each lecture that we've had in our capstone class conservation theory. I've been asking the conservators who who I really admire or who have had a real impact on my practice and my thinking about conservation to do a sort of 10-minute presentation on something meaningful to them. And that's been a lot of fun to, to get all those different voices and different thoughts into the classroom as well and wouldn't have been something we could have done before this pandemic. That's really lovely. What would you say that the biggest challenges have been? Well, as I said, trying to, you know, truly read the room when it's um, online, but also captioning the lectures. Um, So, you know, there's a push for accessibility, which is great. But as we've moved online, there's a lot more to caption. And and, and I have found that the captioning software just really doesn't like a lot of the words we use, for <laughs> yeah. example. <laughs> yeah. Conservator, it wants to change to conservative every time. So it yeah. sounds like some <laughs> terrible political thriller. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. What would you say the biggest uh, successes have been? So I think it has been that that bringing the world into the lab, finding new ways of doing things. Mm. And, you know, honestly, the other thing that's that's made this so much easier is how involved the students have been and how really willing to experiment with us and to adapt with us they've been. I have enjoyed that tremendously. So, you know, I'm having to come up with new ways of doing things or new activities for them. And they seem so willing to see it as an experiment and to engage with why it didn't work, how to make it better, also what they liked about it. And and I think in the past, sometimes that's been harder to get students to do, to sort of help direct their own learning. Mm-hmm. And I've really enjoyed that element when it comes out in the class. And, and I have to say, I'm so grateful to the students for keeping such an open mind and, <laughs> and being so kind and tolerant with all of this. Oh, that's great. That's really good to hear. <laughs> Now that you've done this through spring and summer, what kind of lessons are you taking away for the year ahead? I think that what I've really learned is that that there are parts of the course that would benefit from a more flipped approach. And there are ways that we can use this to add more practical elements into the course in the future, which is funny since, you know, I think we've worried about the practical elements being lost to this. But it does facilitate ways that in the future we could turn what would be a lecture into more of a practical session and involve the students more with things. And and that's exciting to me to think, you know, what's hopefully some normality <laughs> arises, how we can use this in, in really great ways. Oh, that's so good. That's really great. How did you actually tackle the practical learning now that we're talking about that? Yeah, so we've been lucky because we've been able to protect it pretty well. What we're doing is we have to double teach. So we would normally teach a full day of practical components, and then the students would have an afternoon of of open lab, sort of. We can have five students in the lab for one of the practical days, and then we re-offer it two days later to the other five students. Yeah. My colleague and I have both seen benefits in that because 
with just five students, you can really be very present and show everybody something, even with social distancing, yeah. more easily than when you've got a larger group. So, so in some ways, we've really been enjoying that element. That's really great. You know, there are a lot of students who are struggling a little bit at the moment. And I was wondering, how do you support them? And in what ways can you support the ones that are struggling? We've always had a really open office policy here. So my office is right next to the lab. And the students know that they can come in at any point and Mm -hmm. just chat Mm -hmm. about anything. And that's also Mm -hmm. sort of become an open Zoom, open Skype policy. So. If they would prefer to chat with somebody else, the the department has various individuals who they can talk to, you know, ranging from the postgraduate mentor. There's another, we have a textile, uh, a former textile conservator on staff in the department. And um, she is wonderful in her support of the conservation students, as, as well as her own international heritage students. And then the university has really a robust support system that they have moved online terrifically well. And so I think there's a lot of support there as long as the students are reaching for it. Oh, that's really good to hear. In what ways can students develop their practical skills at home? Because I'm assuming there have been a certain amount of that. (laughs) You know, this is something that I have to admit I really struggled with as a concept um, initially because... A lot of people did, yeah. Yeah, and well, what worried me the most about it is the whole health and safety component because a lot of the students are living in you know, studio rooms where they can't really escape from whatever they're doing, you know, what they're using the same surface as a dining room table, as a work table. Um, And so there's a lot of things that you just don't want to introduce to their life. But I was recently having a conversation with one of our students who had her own cake decorating company. Mm. And we were talking about how many of those skills transfer really well to conservation as well. You know, there's a lot of hand skills and the kind of delicate icing work that you might be doing (laughs) or just thinking about evening surfaces, about um, icing the cake itself. There's a lot of color matching and and scope for trying color matching. And that started making me think that you know, there's quite a lot that they could be doing with that sort of thing that is health, healthful, or maybe not healthful, because yeah. <laughs> once you make a cake, you have to eat it. Oh, how dreadful. What a problem to have. <laughs> <laughs> it's healthier than working with adhesives or um, corrosion products or things like that. You know, we've also been introducing fake food making to our program because, you know, for historic houses, things like that, that can be a skill that's that's useful. And that seems like something that one can do at home in terms of just color matching again. That is amazing. I love that idea. <laughs> Um, and box making, you know, box making is another thing that that's less dangerous. <laughs> mm, yeah. So these have all been things that I've I've been thinking about. But then, you know, there's so many of the soft skills that people can practice as well, rather than just the practical skills. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I love the idea about the fake food. That's amazing. <laughs>
Hi everyone, my name is Linda Skipper and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Lincoln. I'm also programme leader for the BA in Conservation of Cultural Heritage we offer at the university. Brilliant. So firstly, I'll ask, what has your year looked like in terms of remote teaching? So um, we offer teaching across undergraduate and postgraduate courses. So my answers are going to refer to to all of those. Um, And at Lincoln, there's really been a couple of different phases for us. So with the initial lockdown in March, all of our teaching moved online. We just had a a few hours notice to prepare. The last academic year for us ended in May and we were carrying on with online supervision of master's students who were doing their dissertation over the summer and then our current academic year started in mid-October and so our current academic year we're teaching through a blended learning approach which is a mix of face-to-face practical teaching and online lectures and seminars so we're still working from home where we can but we're going into campus for face-to-face teaching and also to to carry out our own research and other projects. What have your biggest challenges been then? I'd say this very initial challenge for us when lockdown started in March was actually the practicalities of online teaching because it wasn't something that we particularly had a lot of experience in before and we had to learn the systems pretty quickly. So we use an an online system called Blackboard. We use that as standard so we do that to share module content and information about assessments. But within that there's a teaching tool which we can run live lectures called Collaborate Ultra and that's the part of it that we hadn't really had any experience with. Now we've obviously had various training within our School of History and Heritage. So we had a, a session with colleagues to sort of share their experiences and to share their approaches to help everyone develop their skills in that. Um, we shared them with each other. We were also during that process learning how to engage students online and to rewrite the teaching plans to work effectively for an online session, thinking about how we can make use of the chat function and polls and breakout groups, which we can do online. So we're now much more experienced in how that all works but obviously that very first initial period was certainly quite challenging trying to figure out the best way of doing things. Within that lockdown period we also had some of us at least had personal challenges because I had both of my children at home as well they're they're five and eight years old and so they every now and again they came and contributed to the starts of lectures. (laughs) We even got a ukulele performance out of them once and I think they quite enjoyed seeing the students sometimes but I was a bit worried about how much they would interfere with the teaching but actually it it was quite fun and it all went fairly smoothly. Other challenges, we had to obviously rethink how we approach face-to-face teaching so that students could be safe when they came back to campus in October. Um, We've got our own purpose-built teaching spaces and so we were able to think about how we rewrite the timetable to keep groups into small bubbles rather than having the whole year group in at one time. Um, And we also changed it a bit so that we had the students in for a whole week of block lab access and teaching but in rotation. So normally we'd have the students in one day a week or two days a week, but instead we gave them longer sessions in the classes so that there wasn't so much cleaning down between groups, for example. I see, yeah. And I guess there's one final challenge, which is about work placements. And it's more a a student-related challenge um, in some ways because our undergraduate students have an optional work placement, which takes place in the second term of their second year of studies on the BA. Um, And that's a 12-week placement. And the lockdown started kind of mid-placement for our students so they had to cut their placements short but moving forwards into this academic year obviously we've still got lots of places 
institutions that are closed, staff are on furlough. It's not really practical for the students to easily source placements because there's so much uncertainty and they don't know what will be happening in February when they be due to start. Luckily, because it's an optional module, we do have other alternatives so students can take teaching on modules which are held across our School of History and Heritage. But it's a shame that those people who had been hoping for a placement haven't had the opportunity to take that up this year. Um, hopefully there'll be some voluntary work available in the summer when fingers crossed things might be a little bit more back to normal. So what have your successes been? Well I think some of the challenges that we've had also probably link quite well into what I would Mm -hmm. say has been some of the the biggest successes. We have a really great team here at Lincoln and we really are focused on giving the students a good experience of of studying in Lincoln and everyone's worked really hard to make sure that you know whatever the circumstances are however we're teaching we're giving the students an education in conservation that it meets all the learning outcomes for the course and the module and we've all worked together so well to share ideas and share new skills and to learn together is the best way of doing that. We've certainly been getting really good positive feedback about how the online teaching works and how much the students have engaged with that and how they've appreciated it. Of course, some people will always prefer face-to-face teaching, which is understandable. But what we've noticed is that the online teaching helps students feel a bit more confident about contributing in class discussions. Ah. Um, And they also have access to the recordings afterwards. So they're not trying to take live notes. They can revisit the sessions and take notes afterwards if that works better for them had some really good feedback about how we've done our practical weeks in blocks instead of students coming in one day a week or two days a week so they the students get support before the in-person classes to develop the treatment plan for the object they're working on and so when they come in on that Monday morning they're really ready to start their conservation treatments and they can focus on that object just for the whole week so they get a bit more continuity from working in that block on the object and I think they're making a bit faster progress as well because they are that more focused and prepared for doing it for a full week and I think that's something we'll talk about whether that's possible to continue it once we're back to normal final year undergraduate students who finished their course in the summer of 2020 and when lockdown happened they were really preparing for their exhibition in the lab so normally we'd have all of the objects that they've worked on out they put together their exhibition and people come visit it but that wasn't possible and so they the students had to really adapt very quickly and they put together a fantastic online exhibition instead and it certainly wasn't easy for them but what they achieved with their online exhibition all the skills they learned about putting together websites that was really really great and we were really impressed with how they adapted and adjusted under the circumstances. Now that you've done this throughout the spring and summer, which lessons will you be taking away for the year ahead? So first of all, I think it's just about how how important it is to be very adaptable and to rethink mm. approaches as needs be because see the there's so much uncertainty and government guidance seems to be updated quite regularly, such as the yes. plans to teach face to face up until Christmas and we had to then redesign our timetable for the two weeks before Christmas to move lots of our face to face sessions around so that we could accommodate the latest guidance about allowing students to have that two weeks before Christmas for testing and then returning turning home if they wished and so we've got all sorts of different plans for all sorts of different scenarios and so it's just about being quite reactive I think and also finding new and creative ways of working online that we've really learned a lot about. We are currently working on a level seven which is master's level cultural heritage conservator apprenticeship which we're planning to start in February 2021 Um, and this is a five-year apprenticeship working with employers where we provide the academic element and the employer provides 
the practical work. And within that, lots of students are going to be outside of Lincoln, living and working. You could be anywhere in England. And so when we were starting to think about the course, we were already thinking about how we can support students in an online basis rather than asking people to come in all the time for face-to-face classes. But certainly that experience of online teaching has really helped us to feel much more prepared about how we're going to work with the apprenticeship pathway students when we get that up and running. So in a very practical course, in what ways do you tackle practical learning? Practical, as you said, is really, really important. And at the moment, we're obviously offering face-to-face practical teaching as part of the blended learning approach. And the way that we've structured the sessions is that the students are in much smaller groups than normal. So we've split up year groups where we have much smaller numbers in the labs at any one time. And so the students are are in a bubble um, and it also allows more social distancing to take place in the labs. Obviously, when we were in full lockdown, we worked in a more theoretical way. So we were supporting the students with thinking about how ethics and decision making and planning Mm. treatments can be done rather than the more physical practical work itself. And in what ways can students develop their practical skills at home? Well, as I've already mentioned, we I think it's students can develop the skills around this kind of practical work in terms of thinking about decision making and so on. Um, and I've also used other methods like um, when I was teaching some of the conservation science, I videoed myself doing tests in our labs and then mm. sent the students the videos to ask them to then evaluate and interpret the results. So there are things we can do slightly differently in a more theoretical way. But also if we were to move fully online for this academic year we've now had a bit more time to prepare things like practical packs that the students can work on at home so our intention would be to send out this practical pack they already have their own toolkit that comes as part of the course Um, so the practical pack contains things that they could work on different exercises they can do obviously some of the things that they can do at home is a bit more limited because they don't have things like extraction or they don't have all the equipment that we've got in our labs but we're able to do enough that with these practical packs they would still be able to get some at home practical experience depending on on which level they're at would depend on the sort of complexity of the packs. So finally then in what ways do you offer support to students who are struggling? Well, as a, a standard, all of the students on the course have a personal tutor and the personal tutor is generally this first point of call for you know, general questions and queries and support from either an academic point of view or a, a personal point of view. Obviously, if students have specific questions about a module, then they talk to our module leaders. But personal tutors, what their role is to meet with students regularly either as, as individuals and as a group and to offer support with whatever any concerns are or any areas they might wish to raise and that might include signposting the students to some of our other university facilities that are available to all the students so we have a well-being service and they offer short-term support or longer-term support whether that's mental health learning differences what we've done on top of that is obviously we've added in some extra measures to support students through coronavirus so there's specific support and advice for students who are self-isolating or awaiting test results or have a positive test regular checks from their personal tutor to make sure that they're doing okay if they need anything and obviously in conservation because we have that emphasis on practical work we do our best to arrange catch-up sessions if people have had to miss any time as part of the teaching i think the the coronavirus specific help that the university is offering has been really positive and beneficial as well
Hi, Jenny. So I'm Renata Peters. I work at the UCL Institute of Archaeology. I've been there for quite a long time. And I coordinate the MA in Principles of Conservation. Mm. And I work with Carmen. Right. So I'm Carmen Vida. Hi, Jenny. <laughs> I'm also at UCL Institute of Archaeology. I'm working here as a project conservator for a couple of research projects. I'm also supervising students doing the MSc in conservation for archaeology and museums and, and generally helping in the lab. And uh, yeah, that's me. Oh, thank you both for joining me today. I was going to start by asking, what has your year looked like in terms of remote teaching? Our year, as you can probably guess, uh, looks very different from regular years, right? In terms of work, we had to adapt really quickly last March, but we were also very lucky because we were heading to the end of term two when the first lockdown started. We adapted quite fast to the new demands and challenges and uh, moved things, uh, most activities online and so on. When term three started, uh, towards the end of April, then there were new challenges because then we had to also adapt to practical work and other things. And then during the during the summer, we spent the whole summer planning how this new academic year would be. So there was a lot of work, but it's paying off really nicely. So we're very happy about that. I totally agree with what Renata has said. The fact that we had the first lockdown in March, for me, it was a huge spanner in the wheels because I was in the middle of getting about 12 objects for exhibition being treated by the students and working with them. That was mm. a sort of teaching one-to-one -one. and going into lockdown, not knowing how long it was going to go on for having barely any time to sort of plan or think ahead mm. was a bit of a of a sort of I think for everyone was like oh my goodness what's going to happen and for me there was a lot of working with the students because they were in the middle of the of the sort of practical year and uh, and what's going to happen and how we're going to do it and sort of that that kind of process which again I think we we managed very quickly to find ways of keeping communication open at all times of working with them on ways of getting things done. Yeah, I think it's I think it's been very good, but in terms of teaching at a distance, for me initially it was a bit of a challenge, I have to say. What would you say was the biggest challenge? For me, I think in, in the first lockdown it was the unpredictability of things. The sort of the haziness about what was going to happen when, what could be done, what couldn't be done, which didn't allow for sitting down and, and planning things and being sure that that was the way they were going to, yeah, to happen. Quite. There was a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. But also, I think in relation to what Carmen uh, was saying, during the summer, it was really challenging as well, quite similar, but in a different way, because we didn't know what was going to happen. So to plan this new academic year, we had to plan three different scenarios yes. because we really didn't know what was going to happen, right? In terms of COVID, in terms of restrictions yeah. and anything really. So we spent a lot of time planning this three different scenarios, you know, but like I said, it has paid off, but it's really a lot of work and also a lot of creativity that has to go into that, right? So yeah. there are some yeah. nice, nice uh, aspects to that. What, what would you say has been your biggest success in that case? 
For me, the way we've managed to actually do what we have to do and deliver teaching, make that teaching relevant and interesting mm. in, mm-hmm. in the circumstances. So one thing that obviously I'm very involved with the practical side of things. And, you know, one thing we had to kind of prioritize was making sure that as soon as there was a chink of opportunity and things started opening up a bit, that we would be allowed back in the building as soon as possible. And in Mm. fact, conservation students, that was a big success because UCL allowed conservation students in very quickly. And um, the way we work here, the students get a certain number of objects every year and they work on them and through them they learn specific materials and so on. But in this case, we had to kind of, again, adapt So instead of having each object with one student, which was what we had started back before the lockdown started, we thought, well, we'll do it differently. We're going to teach them what delivery of conservation for a loan or an exhibition is Mm. like. So it's a different way of working, uh, as we did, Jenny, if you remember. Yes, indeed. (laughs) We work together. (laughs) Work on an object, but everybody's kind of chipping in and Mm. communication works differently. You know, the, the focus is on getting things done and delivered by a certain date so that experience for the students was great because they normally don't get it when mm. they're students so yeah. um, just having that chat with them and saying look we can do this and we can do it this way what do you think and they all went for it like mad they were really keen on doing it each one was lead in a specific aspect of the project so some people were lead on documentation some people were lead on analytical research some people were lead on paper labels some people were lead on photography you know and they had that sense of ownership of the project yeah. but at the same time they were all working together in shifts two groups two bubbles of students and I think that was a huge success and they got the work done by the date they were going to get it done by originally so Yeah, I think also in terms of success for all of us, the combination of different kinds of teaching, right? So different kinds of teaching methods and uh, different approaches that we had to come up with according to what was being taught and the objectives of uh, the original activities. And also, like uh, Carmen said, you know, another, another success that I want to highlight here is how strongly we had to advocate for conservation at UC. You know, Mm. so that we were still allowed to do face to face teaching, to work with collections, to work with the actual objects, even though the number of hours that we are doing that this year has really decreased. We had to advocate really strongly for the training, you know, for the importance of having that kind of experience for the students, right? So I think that was a big success for us. Yeah, Yeah, we were. Yeah. you're kind of done with 2020. Like what lessons are you taking away from this year? I think first one, not to take anything for granted mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the things that we used to think were unthinkable, uh, many of them have happened this year, right? So we really had to adapt very quickly and learn very quickly. I think that there are so many silver linings, you know, yes. and we definitely, when we start the new academic year, when we go back to a normal situation, right? Vaccination and all that, we will do things differently. Mm. Because of teaching online and the students are staring at the screen all day as well. To be very aware of screen fatigue. Mm. Yeah. And that has changed a little bit the way I yeah. am, I'm teaching. Because I always try to make it interactive. 
but I'm super I'm aware super now aware that now. it needs to be really interactive and it has challenges because I'm taking with me like two things, two sort of key ideas from this. One is communication at all levels, you know, uh, with the students, within the faculty, the teaching faculty, with, you know, everybody. The other thing is that adaptability. Some of the things we're doing now, we wouldn't have done before. We've been forced by circumstance to do them and they're actually pretty good. So we're probably going to keep them because there's always this balance in conservation between in teaching, between giving them a lot of uh, facts and material that they need to know, but then getting people to think about the problems themselves and, mm-hmm. and work their way, sort of that problem-solving ability of conservators. Having lectures pre-recorded allows us to, you know, people can, obviously will have to factor time. That's not going to be, <laughs> that's not going to go away. But sort of that is there. And then we can make better use of discussion times instead of, yeah, talking about things, getting yeah. people yeah. to think of how to solve problems. We've already talked a little bit about how you tackled practical learning, but I'm curious in what ways do you think your students can develop their practical skills at home if they need to? So we have worked quite a lot with uh, kits. During the summer, we put together some kits, so some simple equipment and materials for mm-hmm. students to conduct experiments at home. So mm-hmm. some of them were more focused on preventive conservation and others more focused on material science, yeah. um, but also practicing some skills at home, right? Taking in, into account all the, the health and safety measures and all that. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not very straightforward for a number of reasons mm. but it has worked really well you know mm. so students are monitoring infestations at home I'm sure their families are very happy about that <laughs> <laughs> there will be no more moths next year but uh, there are some students who are also practicing some skills at home and so on yes. but of course for the actual practical work it's more um, challenging um, they've had some home kits sent also for practical work um, obviously we can't send anything that is a uh, hazardous substance for mm. sharps. But they've been able to do things like dry reconstruction of ceramics. In our initial kits, you know, for the initial lists, we had uh, scalpels on our lists, mm. right? And then our health and safety officer was like, what are you thinking? Oh. <laughs> scalpels. Uh, you cannot do that. Boom. So yeah, that's the kind of thing you do not do at home. And my last question to you guys today is, in what ways do you offer support to students who are struggling? The time we spend with students this year, in a way, you know, it has increased because there is much more individual work that most of it is done online. But there there are much more one on one sessions than we would have otherwise. So that's one of the ways making sure that we're not overworking the students as well. I think that's, Mm. I have to say that, that the students have have been so amazing. You know, I have so much admiration for them, for their ability to stand up to the challenges that are coming their way and manage to adapt to so many things and to manage a lot of frustration, of course, right? Because they all had a lot of expectations in relation Mm -hmm. to their personal lives and in relation to their training. And they have been amazing, you know. I I really wouldn't be able to do it without this uh, uh, energy that Mm -hmm. we are getting from the students. It's really positive 
you know, we've had chats with the students one-to-one practically every week with everyone. And yeah, those chats yeah. sometimes are, how are things, how are you getting on? So not necessarily coursework related, just, you know, sort of checking on them yeah. and uh, being available, really. I think time, we've yeah. put in a lot of time, um, gladly, I have to say, very happily, um, just to, because in a way, I think it's been not just the students who've been struggling. I think the whole world's been struggling. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. you kind of sort of... Yeah approach them from from the same level than you because you know i know how you feel you know i've been stuck at home as well yeah and, and sort of yeah but it's it's heartwarming isn't it because they are checking on us as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good yeah no, so i think in a in a way you know i think uh, the relationships in the beginning of the year with the new students they develop uh faster things are quite extreme at the moment right so you really go for what matters yeah so, yeah, they do check on us as well, which is really heartwarming. <laughs> That's such a nice thing to end on, guys. That's so adorable. I love it. Today's question is from an anonymous student. And the question is, what do you think makes a good conservation dissertation? Dear student, There has been a little bit of delay in me receiving and replying to this question, and this at least in part is just in case the inquiry came from one of my own students, and that could anyway be seen to have prejudices in any way become impartial in terms of the advice. However, I'm hoping that most students have now handed in dissertations or have only just started beginning thinking about them, or are listening to this on repeat, so to speak, as they plan their dissertations. What makes a good dissertation? Honestly, the number one thing is something that you're interested in. If you're not interested, it can be quite a slog. Now, you haven't said whether yours is a master's or an undergraduate dissertation or indeed a PhD, but I'm guessing master's or undergraduate. But in either case, this is probably going to be the longest thing you've ever written. It's going to be a document you get lost in. It's going to be the first time you've really had to navigate and manage data and lots of details like massive bibliographies. So there's a lot of work there to be done. And if you don't, if you're not loving the topics, then it's going to be hard to keep going. The second thing about what makes a good dissertation is have an actual question. I think that generic talking around topic dissertations are very hard to do because there's no boundary and no limit. You can write something that's too short or too long or not covered. And I think that it's very hard for you to know where the beginning and the end of your work is. So if you ask a question, if you say, there is something I'm interested in, there's this topic or this issue or this thing that's scratching away at me or these papers I've read and they've always worried me about why they didn't have more evidence or how they came to this conclusion or I've heard this thing being said about museums and it doesn't make sense to me. Whatever that question is, form it into a dissertation question and take it to your supervisor because a good question makes a good dissertation. The next step to making a great dissertation is to take your beautiful, beautiful question and cut it down to a tenth, if not a hundredth of the size of the topic that you first started with. And this is something that your supervisor will normally help you with. This is not a failing on your part as a student because ambition, scope and and a dream is a good thing. It's a good 
more than a decade since I wrote the plan for my dissertation for my master's and I still haven't finished all my publications answering all the things that I put in my first dissertation plan. So I was advised to cut it down and grumbled a bit about it back then but it was obviously right and I advise almost every student I ever meet to cut theirs too. I think it feels alarming that you're not going to be able to find that many words but really you are because the point of a dissertation is to really dig deep not and that and that can be deep in terms of detail, but that can be deep in terms of the scope or the ideas that you experiment with. But almost always, you need to pick off a smaller chunk of the work than you think you're going to be able to do. And don't panic about running out of words. Again, that's something to work with your supervisor on. You should be able to find words. So you've got an idea that's interesting. You've got an actual question. Now you've focused it. What else makes a good dissertation? Well, go and find something original to say. Whether that's data collection, analysis, or just a new perspective, sometimes you can hold a mirror up to the, our sector by looking into another sector, but let's get an original or a fresh perspective at some level. You're then going to want to present all of that in a quite a structured way. Dissertations are formal. So what we'd like to see is progression. At the beginning of your dissertation, your questions and your aims and your objectives, oh, it makes me happy. A well-structured abstract that is an abstract properly laid out according to the rules format, and then work through the problem. Start from the big picture issues down to the question that you ask, then how you plan to answer it, how you did answer it, then what you take from the evidence that you looked at, and then write a conclusion. Please write a conclusion. There is something about the dissertation process. By the time you get nearly to the end, you're exhausted. You're tired, you want read, you don't want to look at it file ever again, you just want to push it away. And so some students write really brilliant work and then fail to write a conclusion. So I would encourage you to finish, give it to somebody to read, I'm sure you will be doing that, and then ask them just to look at your conclusion chapter. Tell them in your head what you think is in there and get them to write down all the things that in your head are in there but aren't. Because most of the time, <laughs> really good dissertations that come apart a little bit is because the conclusion isn't written. I think it's because you've spent so long with the topic, you're so familiar with it, that it's all kind of obvious. Well, obviously, if you look at that table, table 68C, it's obvious that this means that. But it's not obvious in the sense that your dissertation actually has to spell that out. Spell out how table 68C explains um, whatever it is that you think it explains, or you allege it explains, or why it shows you that more work needs to be done to fully understand it. Don't feel frightened about asking more questions. Don't feel frightened by ending research, by saying more research is done. That's how all the best researchers go through their lives. And don't be frightened about finding null results. It's okay to say, I looked into this and I found nothing. It's quite hard to write up and again, get some good technical advice about how to explain that you didn't find anything because it's so much safer to say, I looked here, here and here and in these ways and I didn't find anything than to say there is nothing there. There is nothing there. It's such a dangerous claim, so try to avoid it. But if it does go wrong, if you do an experiment and you've got nothing from it, then you just say them and you just explain how that's impacted on your understanding of the topic and where you would go with that next. And then you'll be absolutely fine. So I hope at the end of it, you've got something that you're proud of, something that you can put on a shelf, come back to and perhaps one day share it with a wider community as an article, as a blog, as an activity, because it is nice, perhaps a few weeks, if not months, after you've finished writing it, it is nice to go back to it and then look at the value and not just to leave it as something gathering dust on your shelves. I know I have revisited my postgraduate dissertation, my undergraduate dissertation. I think let's just agree 
best we don't talk about. So that's all my advice. Over and out. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisement. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Anna Livia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you'll be listening to Jane Henderson, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jane Mathiasen. Join us next time for an episode about Christmas. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Missick, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. I've got a window cleaner. <laughs> he keeps making noises and I'm really distracted because I'm like, when do I wave politely? I think you need to first explain to overseas listeners the British people's obsession with when the correct oh, moment is it. for a polite wave at a complete stranger. <laughs> <laughs> He's gone now. The The moment is over and he didn't get my polite wave. <sighs> now that's another layer of anxiety. <sighs> oh, God.